Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers on the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. I'm delighted to say, yes, she's back. I'm joined today by perhaps the only cheese-loving feudal landlady currently working in literary journalism, although I've not tested that. Surely not. Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. Happy New Year to you. Hello, Happy New Year. Welcome back. And we've got a lovely show to do today. We have, we have indeed. It's very exciting, actually, and I'll tell you why shortly. But if you want to subscribe to the TLS, that means you're not doing it already. Shame on you. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. So subscribe to the TLS, review this podcast on iTunes, etc. etc. We have an inordinate amount of great stuff to discuss this week. Writer and broadcaster Marcel Theroux will be in the studio to discuss the tale of Nicholas Notovich a Russian purveyor of hashtag fake news about Jesus from the Victorian period. Intrigued? You should be. We have a Middle Eastern special in the paper this week and the Palestinian journalist Lena Al-Safin will be on the line to discuss her review of books that might be said to represent conflict tourism in the area. How much good does writing about Israeli occupation actually do? Our political editor, Toby Lishtig, will pop in to add his thoughts as well. And we all discuss writing about autism, that often mislabeled and misunderstood condition, with the author Francesca Happe, who has reviewed two memoirs by people with autism themselves. Let's begin by telling the story of a forger, an unreliable storyteller, a fraud. Nicholas Notovich, a Russian-born resident of Paris at the turn of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ, containing this rather weighty claim. During the lost years of Jesus' life, the gap in the Bible between his childhood and the beginning of his ministry in Palestine, Jesus visited India and trained as a Buddhist monk. His evidence was a mysterious document with leaves yellowed by the lapse of time he had found in a remote monastery in the highlands of Ladakh in India. Written in the ancient language of Pali, it told of the travels in India of a man called Issa, who looked a lot like the Jesus of the Gospels. Is it credible? 
Probably not, as Marcel Theroux has found out. But the reasons for the fabrication are fascinating. Marcel used the stories as a basis for his beautiful new novel, The Secret Books, which a review in the TLS has thankfully called a deeply moving moral story. Mm. Otherwise, this would have been an awkward few moments. (laughs) And has given us the factual account in an essay in this week's paper. In The Secret Books, Marcel referred to the idea of books containing other beliefs that might be richer, truer, fairer and kinder than reality. Is that what Notovich was trying to achieve? Well, Marcel Theroux joins Thea and me in the studio now. Welcome Hi. to you, Marcel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it would have been awkward if we. It would have been. Ca- ca- yeah, I think I would have. I'd like to think I'm thick-skinned enough to have uh, no seen way. past it. No, impossible. You'd have just <laughs> said no, would you? Quite right too. Let's start at the beginning with this this chap. Am I pronouncing it right, Nick Nicholas? No- well, Notovich. probably not. But oh, I call him I call him Notovich. Notovich. But I think I, I think in Russian his name would have been Natorovich. 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 Okay. Who was he, and what did he claim? So he was a journalist and spy who was born in the Russian Empire in about 1858, who then showed up in Paris, uh, did, worked for various quite uh, legitimate news organisations. Then in 1894, he published this extraordinary book, The Unknown Life of Jesus, which he claimed uh, he'd found. He claimed he'd found the text that forms the heart of it in Hemis Monastery in Ladakh. And he said, as you explained in your intro, that it proved that Jesus had spent his lost years studying Hinduism and Buddhism in India. And uh, Notovich himself is kind of shadowy. I mean, he ter- this we know this much about him. There's a bibliography. We've, there are other books that he wrote. Uh, he turns up in a French dictionary of national biography. There's no biography of him, though, and no one knows when he died. That's a matter of conjecture. And actually, in my investigations into Notovich, I learned that he lived much longer than anyone knew. Because he pops up in, in 1939. Par- yeah. In 1939. Yeah. That's right. In, Lon- in the London Library, I found... I thought I might as well read all the books that I could get my hands on by Notovich. And I found a book called Russia and the English Alliance in the London Library. And the flyleaf is inscribed by Notovich in blue ink to the Duchess of Kent. And when I remember... I, and I felt a th- this kind of thrill as Did I you saw... That must be so exciting. Well, it was so exciting. I wasn't sure whether it was exciting or whether I'd gone so deep into my nerdish enthusiasm... <laughs> that you know, only I would find it exciting. But the idea that I'd actually caught up to a place where he'd actually been and that he'd lived to 1939. 1939 is almost touching distance. Yeah. Well, What led you to him in the first place? So what led me to him was I was really interested in apocryphal stories about Jesus. And I had been reading the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels, which is a book about you know these yeah. other texts that didn't make it into the Bible, or texts that turned up in the 20th century that tell these kind of alternate stories about Christianity. And I had always been struck by the similarities between, say, Taoism or Buddhism and elements of Christianity that I find really attractive. You know, that uh, the Tao is about yin and yang, but about light being cleaved from dark, which is also how Genesis begins, right? So that seems like a uncanny parallel. But also in Sermon of the Mount and in the Gospel of Thomas, which is another Gnostic text, the Jesus that you read about is kind of strangely Buddha-like in the things he said. Uh, and he doesn't perform miracles. He just he says wise things, and so it struck me maybe there is a 
link between Buddhism and Christianity, and it's by no means impossible that some news travelled along the Silk Road and reached Palestine. And then I turned up this old story. It turned out that in 1894, this Russian guy, Nicholas Notovich, who I found on the internet, this is about 2002, when his Wikipedia entry was only two lines, both of which were wrong. It said he was a it said he was a, the son of a nobleman and a Cossack adventurer. Um, Did he write it himself, do you think? Uh, <laughs> Somehow. He's probably not, not, not impossible, yeah. I suppose. He's and, still alive. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a great twist. Yeah, it would, yeah. Um, if you're listening. You can have it. Yeah, yeah. If Nicholas Notovich is listening to the po- podcast, yeah. pr- please, please phone in. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There's this guy published this book in 1894, which he claimed he'd found in uh, Tibet in 1887. Why don't more a why don't more people know about this uh, my second thought was is it true i mean is it possible that he really went to a monastery in ladakh and found such a, a manuscript so you went to the monastery i did i went to the monastery <laughs> about a year up i'd written a draft of my novel the secret books but but because i thought i'd always thought we've got to give him the benefit of the doubt maybe it is true i mean by that stage i have to admit it i was pretty sure he wasn't telling the truth and he'd written the book for other reasons. But I thought I'd go there. I want to go there anyway. And also to see what the place looks like and to have a sense of walking in his footsteps and see if there was something in the atmosphere that would, would, would help me with the book. Very little oxygen, it turns out. Very little oxygen. You feel absolutely <laughs> appalling as you get out of the plane. It is like it is like a foretaste of being 80 years old. You have real difficulty filling your lungs. But conversely, when you come down from that altitude, you feel absolutely fantastic. Do you? You have so many red blood cells in your body. Yeah, yeah you feel brilliant for yeah. about a day. Then. That's a top tip. Yeah, yeah top tip. <laughs> yeah, really cheer you yeah. up. Come down from a high altitude. So you get to the monastery and... I went to see the... It was the deputy it was the deputy abbot was there and I, I, I talked to him about it and he, he, I felt like he was too polite to say look mate you just wasted your time like there's no way this is true I felt that would have been a kind of un-Buddhist thing to say to a traveller who'd come all that way but he more or less said look there's no books in Pali in here and I've really heard this story but uh, I, I'm, I'm, I really don't know in a way that suggested you know you're out of luck but if more people want to come and ask we'd be very happy to accept their donations to the monastery and and in fact more that was more or less what people said soon after the book was published he he was the he was the flavor of the month it was the flavour of the month for about six months. The New York Times wrote an article sort of semi-straight, semi didn't they? Several. They wrote, there were several New York Times. The book was published in French and it was quickly translated into a lot of other languages. And it's still around. You can still you can go on Amazon and buy it still. Uh, you can. There are still people who subscribe, who think it may be true. It may even represent a kind of truth in that there may be elements of Buddhism in uh, early Christianity. And and who knows what Jesus was doing in his missing years? That's why it, it's not a story that could be scotched finely. But so let's get to the, your, your theory because you say that a lot of people didn't like him. Right, you know, Notovich. He, when he crops up in in contemporaneous people, sources, people basically think he's a jumped up so and so, a forger, a blunder, an unscrupulous chancer is how 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 you That's put right. it. But you think he's doing something altruistic, which is connected to another book he wrote called The Truth About Jews. Yeah, that's right. So the book he wrote, The Truth About Jews, which is this very dubious, very scary sounding title, isn't it? He published in Russia 
in about 1888, I think. And it, it, it's, that's only available in Russian. Uh, and I, so I had to pour through it with the help of a friend and with my kind of, you know, O-level Russian. But the, the truth about the Jews is actually not as bad as it sounds. It's really a story. It's really a book that's urging Jews to moderate their religion in a way that will make them acceptable to the Russian Empire and be integrated into the Russian Empire. Now, I'm not saying that's, I think that would have been a good course of action for the Jews at that time to choose. But but Jews in 19th century Russia were having a terrible time. They were, they were discriminated against. They could only live in certain parts of the country. They couldn't get into... Uh, institutions of higher learning there was terrible job discrimination you know the life chances were terrible so my supposition and i think the evidence shows is that notovich himself was a jew he was writing this as someone who converted from judaism and reinvented him as a orthodox christian was now living in paris as a as a christian and i felt i think he felt a, a kind of duty to his fellow jews to to try and improve their lives and the truth about the Jews was one was his first f his first aim to do that, and I think the unknown life was his second. And why is that? What's the what's the what's the thing he's doing there? To understand that, you need to know a little bit about the roots of anti-Semitism. And I think to me, this is a fascinating subject because it's really about storytelling. And it's this is the bit that I think when your piece because the first half's really interesting about him, but then I actually find this even more interesting. Yeah, I, well, I I was a kind of amazed when I w- read about this, which I did in the course of uh, researching the book, is that so so much of uh, in the Bible and in, variously in the different Gospels, uh, the Jews are presented as uh, the com- the Jewish community in Jerusalem are presented as the people who called for for. Jesus's death right before Pilate and it's it their degree of culpability varies from gospel to gospel but it's strongest in Matthew where they say his blood be on us and upon our children they insist that Pilate put Jesus to death and Pilate does it very reluctantly and there's that symbolic gesture where he washes his hands and says you know I, I absolve myself from this and that that story that obviously was written long after Jesus had died, becomes the basis for the accusation that the Jews are, as a people, collectively responsible for Jesus' death, that they have some kind of collective guilt. And there's, um, in the history of anti-Semitism, this is a key thing. And a, there's a, a book called The Anguish of the Jews, which is a survey history of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism written by a Catholic scholar. And he concludes that this deicide accusation is the fundamental thing behind anti-Semitism. It's the rock, it's the rock upon which anti-Semitism is built. And when you understand that and you read Notovich's gospel which he quote unquote found in a buddhist monastery which although its headline thing is that jesus studied buddhism in its retelling of the gospel story it switches the roles the jewish elders become the ones who plead for mercy and they even take on the gesture that's attributed to Pilate in the synoptic gospel they wash their hands of jesus murder and Pilate is the one who puts jesus uh, to death. He's one who's solely responsible for it. So I think it was a kind of quixotic, noble, ultimately failed attempt to rewrite the gospel story and to relieve the Jewish people of this calumny which dogged them for 2,000 years. And if anyone was in any doubt as to whether that needed, that rebalancing or redressing needed to happen, I mean, you cite a 
a very recent high school basketball game right. in the US just that's to right. show how kind of mainstream that that's blame right. culture is. That's right, that the Jews killed you, yeah. you killed Jesus. Was it a, at a high school basketball that game in Boston? That's petrifying. Jew- it's, a, it's astonishing. I think, you know, unless... You, I, I know, it's astonishing to me that something in a story 2,000 years ago can still be mobilised mm. to... Um, to traduce uh, and, and humiliate uh, an entire people. And there's, a, there's an ironic parallel with this book, The Unknown Life of Jesus, with another fake news, Russian fake news book right. written at the same time, which I think people will be familiar with. I think that there's a kind of very famously cancerous book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a fake Jewish conspiracy about how Jewish people want to take over the world, yeah, which was written right. in Russia... Not at a dissimilar time. Well, it was probably written in Paris oh, at the very at that time, but it was published in Russia in 1905 for the first time. That's when it first sees the light of day, and it's funny because I feel like with my novel, I wanted people, if they took nothing else from it, to for them to be aware of the protocols of the Elders of Zion because I'm never sure. It feels like the world's divided into people who know exactly what it is and the malign influence it exerted and people who've never heard of it. And I I, I suppose if you... I I imagine if you're Jewish, you know exactly what it is. But lots of people have never heard of the protocols of the Elders of Zion. And in a sense, it is the the grandmother of all fake news stories. And it's... You can see it's still present in stories about... In conspiracy theories, things about the Bilderberg group or the idea that the world is being run by... And people... Shadowy cabal, that's right. I used to do... LBC radio show and I've done things on conspiracies or even when I'm not doing things on conspiracies and people call you up and say yeah but you're, you're, you're told to say that by the sort of Jewish conspiracies right. Jewish show. And you think, how does when? When, <laughs> when, when when's the meeting like I've never been into a meeting where someone said but guys by the way can we just cover this in this it's a very tenacious fantasy that the world works in that way and that there is a, room, a shadowy room a smoke filled room somewhere where people are taking their Taking the decisions that affect and that's all of what us. The, and that's what this protocol says. Yeah, the protocol is absolutely that. But in the in the shadowy room is there there is all they're all Jewish men, Jewish elders, who are deciding the fate of the world and deciding that they're going to control the media and uh, lead Gentiles by the nose and take over the world and uh, destroy the Christian religion. And I, I should say very quickly that the book's an utter forgery. And not only is it a forgery, it's yeah. a plagiarism too. It's a plagiarism of a French text by a writer called Maurice Joly. It's got, the, you know, it's got no basis in fact whatsoever. And yet, it, and yet it never, it's a zombie argument that never dies how however many uh, stakes are driven through the heart of the protocols it still lurches to its feet and carries on doing its malign work is a kind of a benign cousin of it well i think uh, this is conjecture but no is in paris at around the time that it's being concocted and i think it's not impossible that he knew its author, a guy called Pyotr Rachkovsky, who was the head of the Russian secret police in Paris, whose job it was to snuffle around finding revolutionaries who were trying to overthrow the Tsarist government, to try, who was trying to stop... He was essentially leading a war on terror you know, of its time. And it's under Rachkovsky's guidance that the protocols was concocted, essentially to make the progressive movement in Russia look as though it was being led by a Jewish conspiracy, because nothing would make it more impotent than the accusation that it was actually a tool in the hands of Russia's most loathed minority. So Rachkovsky has it forged to achieve a kind of uh, here and now function, which is to make progressives look like they're tools in the hands of the Jews and yet it goes on to have this power and I think Notovich 
was possibly aware that this was going on. Even in my sort of darkest and most fearful fantasies, I think I wonder if Notovich had a hand in it. Oh, really? Well, that's a, that's the novelist in me. Look at your both your faces <laughs> fell. Well, you were drumming said, your fingers yeah, on yeah, your yeah. chin as you said it. <laughs> well, I think it's a kind of that was that's the, would be the great not the sort of the dark novelistic payoff, mm. because he was there. He was a Russian speaking, French speaking person who was making his living with a pen in Paris, who was moving in circles that were connected in the secret police with experience in forgery. It's not a million miles away, but it, it's against his whole agenda that you've just spelled out. Imagine the. Imagine the remorse he'd have felt. Well, here's the other thing. We don't know what happens to Notovich, but if he's in Paris in 1939, it is not impossible as a person of Jewish origin, he was two years away, if he'd lived, to have been carted off to the camps. I mean, his story could have ended Absolutely. with the great... When one you, of the great pogroms against with the, Jewish people, the, worst the great one, the, that's right. the, the Holocaust. Which is, that's absolutely right. So from, in my novel, I chose Notovich to be telling a story in 1933 because I thought, you know, because it has that terrible kind of dramatic irony of what's to come. That by the time 1933, Notovich is old and his story is an old kind of derided thing that's been kind of cast off and rejected by history. But in fact, the the, the worst is yet to come and the, and the 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 most virulent form of anti-semitism is about is about to come into power and that was the last trace that you could find then in 1939 then the, the trail goes cold that's or, right yeah. absolutely and, and no one knew that he lived that long that's all i have I, I you know i really tried to figure out where he was but he he really went quiet after about 1905 um and yeah, so it's just that, but that weird accident of finding the book in the London Library, which this feels like a thing I made up. But I, you can imagine <laughs> the, the, the dedication to the Duchess of Kent as well. I find that puzzling. Why would that be? I, 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 she was. She was in Paris. She was in okay. Paris at that time, and uh, I believe I remember doing some research on that. She was based in Paris. I mm. can't remember why. I can, you can imagine he's an elderly old fellow, quite a character at some sort of soiree, meeting foreign royalty, and you know what you—the sense you get about him, having read as much as I can about him—is that he was a social climber. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all that he wanted to try and pal up to some British royalty, and who knows, maybe he thought that would be a. Uh, the uh, London would have been a, probably a good next move for him. Let's, hope, let's, 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 let's hope, hope he made it. Yeah, let's hope he made it. In 1940, yeah. he was in. Yeah, he was, right. he was in London, bludging off the royal family. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think <laughs> so. Let's, let's end the story. Uh, Marcel, it's, it's a wonderful piece. It's a great book. I'm glad we 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 liked it in, in the paper. Uh, thank you so much for joining my, us. Today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And so to the Middle East, that seemingly inexhaustible font of violence, injustice and frustration. We have a run of pieces this week carrying us across the region and a little beyond to take in power transmission in medieval Iran, the story of Abdullah Quilliam, a Victorian convert to Islam, as well as the underreported plight of African refugees in modern-day Israel and a journey to the heart of Yazidi culture. We'll begin, though, in Israel, where, while President Trump and the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu treat peace negotiations like just another real estate deal, in the streets and in the camps, people are increasingly manipulated and polarised, with peace and daily life ever more precarious. All of this has been helped along, argues Lena Al-Safin in this week's paper, by an Israeli propaganda machine that has successfully dominated a story of Jewish security, wars fought in self-defence, a nation that made the desert bloom. 
It has even been argued, she points out, citing Anat Burko of the Likud party, whose chairman, we should say, is Netanyahu himself, that there is no such entity as the Palestinians because the letter P does not exist in the Arabic alphabet. If we do hear alternative views, stories or reports about Palestinian life under the boot of Israeli occupiers, they are generally written by foreign writers and caricature often predominates. So one question for today is how best to challenge these versions of the story and re-envisage the region's past, present and future. And then, what good does it do anyway? Lena joins us on the phone from Qatar now. Lena, hi. Hello. Hi. Um, you, so you've reviewed three books for this piece. Do these books, do they manage to get beyond caricature? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so the whole point of, uh, of writing about um, Palestinians and their lives under occupation, one of them um, was to uh, set them apart from the caricatures that have been portrayed of them in mainstream media. Another is also about raising awareness of the occupation, an audience that has been for too long accustomed to only one side of the narrative. There are, however, I've you know experienced this uh, um, firsthand. Some of these stories that have been reported about, they become shaped or molded into ways that fit kind of like the Western narrative more in a way to kind of create some sort of affinity between the readers and the Palestinians themselves. And that shouldn't be too much of a problem, except uh, when it is actually. So one example um, recently is uh, the arrest of a Palestinian teenager, Ahed Tamimi, who was uh, caught on film slapping and uh, insulting an Israeli soldier. And later that night, uh, the Israeli army came and arrested her from her house. Um, now her, her case took off uh, and it spread like wildfire, in part due to how, how she looks. So Ahed Tamimi has long curly blonde hair and blue eyes. And the attention that has been given to to her case has been largely centered on that. But there are uh, other writers who um, have used, you know, through the beautiful depictions and their words, how they've set a light on, on the, the hardships and the, the difficulties that face Palestinian families and, and individual members uh, on their day-to-day -day, uh, life under Israeli occupation. And what do you think it's like for those people who are being endlessly visited? How, I mean, how do you, as a Palestinian and a writer, how do you feel about about that constant kind of presence? I think now there is more and more a sort of collective sense of uh, frustration at these visits or at this attention from uh, international writers because Palestinians' words are no longer enough. Uh, it is time or it's way overdue for some concrete action to take place. So in the past, you know, we've cultivated this sense of, well, this is the entire um, conflict or the Israeli occupation. A big part of it owes a lot to the propaganda that the um, Israeli government uses. And for a long time, the Palestinians have sought to counter that. But I think nowadays it's past the time where we can use words, especially in this uh, information era where we, uh, that we live in. So if someone wants to find out something uh, about anything, you know, information is literally available right at their fingertips. So there isn't that excuse of ignorance, you know, when, when it's so readily available. So we're kind of past the awareness stage now. And what people want to see is, is more act, like concrete action taken by the, the governments, by the international community who've forsaken the Palestinians. Whenever international writers, and they're always welcomed, by the way, I mean, I don't think anyone has ever like slammed the front door in the face of, of these people. But 
it gets to the point where how how long must they or how many times must they continue to relive their pain and their experience and you know their frustrations just for someone to kind of sap into this world that is completely different from the world that they uh, they know. Does it feel patronising? I wonder whether, because there's a phrase conflict tourism which does appear in, in your piece. Can, can it feel patronising that it's almost a, it's a great thing for a writer of sensibility to do? They can go and, you know, produce beautiful phrases that roll nicely round the mouth they can they can look appropriately empathetic uh, and actually there's there's kind of a, a patronizing possibility there there is definitely and uh, you've touched upon th- this thing and there's another aspect to it as well where for journalists they use Palestine Israel as their as the springboard that launches them into you know the world of journalism basically it looks amazing on their CV if they you know put on if they put down their experience covering Israel Palestine and what they have in rea- in reality what they what they do is basically you know kind of just talk to Palestinians and get this information but sometimes it's not really done with as much finesse as you would hope that they would ha- that they that they would have so it is it is a bit patronizing and, and another another example um, not necessarily to do with writing but it all kind of connects to this thing is uh, Banksy's art on the uh, separation barrier or apartheid wall or whatever you want to call it um, and recently his uh, his his off the wall tourist hotel which which he opened uh, earlier this year and it overlooks a, a, concrete, the, a part of the separation barrier in the West Bank. And, um, so, and you know, you've got other graffiti artists like Lushux who they've also sprayed the, the, their, their art or their graffiti on the wall. And Palestinian, some Palestinian artists, they've kind of defaced that because, you know, in, in protest of this is not your canvas, this for us is a symbol of oppression and not your canvas. And all your arguments at, you know, raising awareness and grabbing the world's attention and so on and so forth, it kind of fall flat, uh, sorry, it kind of fall flat because as I mentioned before, like awareness is something that you can easily attain these, these days and you don't really have much of, much of an excuse of, uh, of feigning ignorance when information is so readily available. Uh, we've got Toby Lichtig, uh, the policy editor of the TLS here. Do you, do you agree with that, Toby? Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of the questions that I've, I've always wondered about these books, and I've read several of them myself, but there's such an industry around them. It's who they're, they're for. Um, you know, who's reading them? You know, Verso, the publisher, churns them out in great quantities, Fourth Estate, Bloomsbury. And you sort of feel like they're being read by people perhaps like me uh, in, in Britain and South Africa and in, in the States who already sort of know what they think about the situation there. And it, 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 there is a kind of, there is a self-serving element to them that I see. And also when you when you talk about the, that, that CV thing, I mean, I've been that, in that position as a visiting journalist to, to Israel and you're taken on a tour. It's all very easy and sanitised. You jump on a minibus, you go to Hebron, you get taken round. It's, you know, deeply depressing and awful to see the situation there. And then you get bussed back to Jerusalem or whatever and you write about it. And, yeah, I, I really I really get your, your sense of frustration at that. I think it really shines through in the piece. I actually spoke, uh, Lena, to Michael Chabon about this mm-hmm. book once. And he, he said to me, oh, I've, we've, we're doing this book. We're, I've edited this book and... It's pretty controversial. It's got a pretty controversial view of the situation. And I remember thinking, I don't know, and that, oh, it's controversial. Um, 
so it's sort of Zionist. Because uh, and but he said to me, no, 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 it, it, it's it's sympathetic towards the Palestinians. And I was like, well, where I'm from, and uh, and in I think Britain probably much more than America. That perspective isn't even that new to me. I, I think there's a great and this way when you talk about Israeli propaganda, I'm struck by that because certainly in, in there's large swathes of the British population uh, are very pro-Palestinian. They don't see it as particularly controversial to adopt a Palestinian position they can recognize the illegality of the occupation is this an american thing where this is controversial shabon was worried about this book coming out because in america being empathetic to palestinians was a massive controversy that doesn't feel like a controversy over here oh well of course i mean if you factor into account that the u.s uh, is israel's biggest supporters and financial backers and how you know they contribute uh, three billion dollars a year in military aid so the culture of of speaking out against israel is uh, is not as prevalent as it is in the uk uh, the solidarity uh, movement or the, the the mainstreaming of solidarity with palestinians is not as easy as it is uh, in the U- in the uk Okay. But, you know, th- I think the U.S. just needs more time and more um, more decades of, uh, of movement building, basically. But um, it's not but it's not. But apart from that, it's also at the top level, the government level. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just about people advocating for change, but it also um, it also goes to the government level and their willingness to 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 actively recognize that the um, that Israel as a state in its in its current state cannot be allowed to function. Well, this, this um, asks a bigger question, Lena. Do writers matter? actually, in the real world of geopolitics, in the real world of how the Middle East actually is, America is not going to give up its support of Israel. Israel is not going to, it would seem, give up its stance on Palestinians. Writers can write lovely prose. Do they matter? Do we actually overvalue the role of writers, do you think? It was interesting. I was just having this conversation with a colleague uh, earlier today about journalism in in, in general and uh, w- whether it's it's the biggest uh, f- uh, farcical industry or not. Because we journalists they, they like to claim that you know their words matter and that they 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 they'll set the world on fire through exposing you know an issue here. But they can write many books about it. But will it actually change? The, the, the ones who actually like control or hold all the power. Well, that'd be an interesting study for an academic uh, paper. Um, well, uh, if, <laughs> America, really, if, if American yeah. journalism mattered, Donald Trump wouldn't be in the White House. Seems to me a relatively straightforward equation that you could draw. Uh, that all the people who write sensible, thoughtful, long op-ed pieces in the New York Times, the Atlantic, all sorts of American outlets... Mm-hmm. didn't stop Donald Trump being elected. And so you can make a case that w- people in journalism like to pride ourselves on its world-shattering impacts, but maybe we live in a world where you can actually brazen anything out. If, if, I mean, if the lessons of the last three years all over the world have been anything, it's that you can brazen mm-hmm. anything out if you just are brazen. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a fair point. And I think, like, when I wrote the article, it wasn't necessarily a critique of, of, of writers and their writings. It was more a reflection. But then that tied into, into the fact that Historically, or or sorry, traditionally, um, one would asso- one associated journalism with 
you know, having the impact um, to change something. But I feel like in today's world, that is no longer the equation. And it's just a matter of deciding just or, you know, does does writing actually have limitations? Does it actually can can it affect things on the ground? And, uh, you know, what like what are what are the other facets that come into play about this? Um, and I think that's still something that needs to be more uh, uh, studied a bit further. What about Palestinian writing in the Palestinian territories? I mean, what, what's the state of Palestinian journalism at the moment? Uh, there's a lot of, there's been a massive uh, <laughs> uh, influx of journalism, um, journalists and uh, photojournalists, photographers especially. Um, the, you know, the, the situation has created uh, an environment where anybody can can grab a camera and kind of like hone their experiences um, on, on the field. Um, and the same thing with writing as well. Um, there is, however, like a lot of censorship from the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and the Hamas government in the Gaza Strip. Um, and there are journalists who struggle to write, uh, uh, you, you know, about issues that um, that will actually uh, put them into a lot of trouble with the authorities. And it's not just about the articles, but it also can be something as mundane as a Facebook status or a social media post. And funnily enough, this is how the Israeli the army, that they also look out for uh, what they call inciting Facebook posts as well, and 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 they've they've got, obviously they've, they have a history of arresting journalists that they consider a threat. Um, but my generation, I feel like you know, social media has, has become this new medium where people can express their thoughts and can, can share their content, and they don't have to go through the traditional uh, newspapers or media or, or media um, outlets that existed before. Um, so that's why it's been more widespread um, in this sense. And so does that leave you feeling hopeful about it? Do you feel like these new media, social media in particular, are having a kind of a galvanising effect on your generation of Palestinians? I don't want to overstress the, the impact of social media. I mean, a lot of pundits did it um, regarding the 2011 uprisings across the Arab world. You know, they they did they they called it the twitter revolution and so on um but when it comes to reporting and um shedding light on the israeli occupation and how this family is affected by this and how this checkpoint did this to that someone i just feel like you know i, do, I don't want it to reach a point where it just all seems very redundant and and very much the same story that you you read every time um but i think right now it's it, the writing needs to be somehow you know harnessed into into um being connected with with the action taking action basically we'll have to leave it there i'm afraid thank you so much for joining us no worries thank you guys Bye. it's a bit depressing uh, that and actually her, her lena's piece ends uh, on a depressing note but a very strong note where she took she's talking to a woman uh, who lives in um where is she she's in uh, near mahola uh, in the She's a, the, the, the Bedouin woman, I think. But, yeah, and mm. she says this: um, Will your will your words help us to rebuild? Will they stop the army from coming? Will they help us to live our lives normally? With every question, I felt further humiliated, dumbstruck by her candor, my naivety, the truth that was staring me in the face. She said that my article wouldn't change a thing. No, you may not take a picture of me. This great woman concluded and flung the blanket divider back into place. And actually. It's a great ending. It's a really powerful ending. But it's it's very sad. Actually. But there is still it preserves the ambivalence of the whole thing because Lena wasn't saying that it's it's completely pointless. It's it's a moot point. It's it's an open-ended thing. So it it 
it has something, all of this writing has something to contribute. You just can't kind of show that, you know, X leads to And to I guess y. The, the, thing, the thing is, by, by and of South itself, Africa, it's not enough. No, of course, yeah. of course not. But You, you know, think South Africa con- con- contributed to it? Which is the, she, she makes an apartheid point. Yeah, there's, the there's a parallel to, to be drawn. Obviously, you can't quantify it, but surely the more attention... It, has to if you just stop reporting on it or stop writing about it then it surely becomes even worse toby is this a gloomy issue of the tls this is a sort of middle eastern well it's about middle eastern politics yeah so yes <laughs> yeah. of course it is it could not be i mean we've got so we've got lena's fantastic piece uh, uh on israel palestine and and sort of it's partly about the status quo as well i always think one of the ways in which israel managed to sort of i don't know kind of maintain its stronghold there is by not doing very much by just sort of not really not really trying to change anything and the status quo suits Israel and we've got another piece fantastic piece by Natasha Lehrer which takes another look at Israel and it's about its migrant populations and refugees from uh, mostly from Africa and the way it treats them and that shines very interesting light on the country's attitude towards its non-Jewish citizens and, and what it means to be a Jewish state and whether that's actually a, a, a particularly vexed thing and, a, and, a, and an increasingly vexed thing these days. But on, on that point there, Netanyahu has in the past few days, I think, he's been trying to push forward some new legislation which would mean that uh, they would have the power to offer an ultimatum to these to these immigrants. Which, either, which has either. echoes of forcible deportation we're talking about 40,000 and one one of the amazing things it's a sort of small historical irony one of the places he's thinking of forcibly deporting them to is Uganda I think it's actually now come out that it'll probably be Rwanda rather than Uganda I have no idea how this is going to work which is interestingly one of the places um, that the Nazis considered deporting Jews to in the early 1930s Um, anyway just small small little historical parallel. parallel there yeah so yes, that's all quite depressing. Um, <laughs> and then we have um, a couple of other fascinating pieces. There's Lydia Wilson on Tunisia, which is a slightly more ends op- hopeful, ends optimistically. And yeah, and you know, I think I think one of the things about the spread of peace is it's very easy for, for for all of us to sort of think of the Middle East as this this monolith, uh, or per, you know, perhaps uh, at best two monoliths. You know, you sort of think of Shia and Sunniism, and actually, of course, it's a it's a collection of completely different communities and different countries. And you know, Lena herself was talking about how fragmented Palestine itself is. Anyway, Tunisia is a different case. Um, it, it's, it's always been slightly more secular uh, and slightly, uh, if not democratic, then liberal in its politics. And yeah, Lydia Wilson sees a little bit of hope for it there. And certainly more hope, say, than the current situation in Egypt or Syria. Or Syria. And so yes, that brings us on to Idris Ahmed's piece on Syria, which. Um, no one will be surprised to hear um, it doesn't give a particularly rosy view of the situation there, although he does end on a slightly upbeat note by saying the, rev- the revolution lives on. Um, what, what that particularly means, um, it's quite hard to say. Um, I, I don't think you know, anything's going to end anytime soon there. Well, it's, it's interesting as well because one of the books that is mentioned in that piece is by um, one by Wendy Perlman, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, and that that sort of picks up on, on the point that we were discussing with Lena uh, you know who gets to tell these stories about these people, and this book is is purportedly told in the voices of you know, it's, its interviews with Syrians. And that and may be a point to leave it on. Actually, that mm. Lena is this Palestinian journalist who's making this case. This book, as you say, the Wendy Palmer book, is people on the ground allowing their stories to be told. And one of the virtues of the modern world of journalism and social media is people with voices can be heard across great distance. And maybe that's the kind of thread that ties this all together. Absolutely, the humanising aspect. Lovely. Toby Lishti, thank you very much indeed. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So the truism goes about this condition, so deeply personal and individualistic, so often mislabeled or misunderstood. We're beginning to see the growth of first-person accounts of what it feels like to have autism. And Francesca Happe reviews two new books this week, Fall Down Seven Times, Get Up Eight by Naoki Higashida, translated by the novelist David Mitchell and K.A. Yoshida, and Odd Girl Out by Laura James. What can we learn about a condition that is, by some people, unthinkingly confused with social awkwardness? He's a bit autistic people say, or that can exist despite apparently ordinary social conditions. You don't seem autistic, as people can say when they speak to someone, like Laura James, who is married with children. Francesca Happe joins Thea and me in the studio now to help us understand all of this. Francesca, hello. Hi. Um, is there now a co correct and agreed identification of what the autism spectrum is and what it means? Is there a kind of a, a, a clinical medical acceptance of, of what it is? There's a set of diagnostic criteria that determine whether somebody receives a, a diagnosis of autism. And that's all about having social and communication difficulties and having rigid and repetitive interests and activities. But the way that those are manifest can be so variable that that's where we get into the spectrum notion. And that's why autism can look so different in different people. And is there a problem with it being pathologised too quickly? Because if we accept that there is a large spectrum, presumably a a chunk of that doesn't require medical inter intervention. Is that fair? That's absolutely right. So we can think of autistic traits on a continuum, but where a diagnosis becomes relevant is where those traits are impairing for somebody. But that's really interesting because whether they're impairing depends not just on you, but on the environment you find yourself in, the help and support that you get, the demands that are placed upon you. So you can imagine that your autism, your autistic traits, could be more impairing if... Your circumstances change. So yeah. if you lose your job, you lose a structure in your life. And much less impairing if you get lucky, you find a good niche. If you're a don at Oxford, you're allowed to sit at a high table and bore on and on about your own special interest <laughs> and maybe not get on people's jokes or, you know, not listen to them properly. 
if you're working on a production line, it's much harder to get away with those kinds of behaviours. So it's an interesting combination of the or fit to your environment. But you don't like terms like high or low functioning or severe or mild autism. You, you say in the piece they can almost be offensive because they, they pigeonhole it in one direction as good or bad in and of itself. I think that's right. Those terms aren't very useful. And also the spectrum isn't unidimensional. So um, how somebody's social and communication needs manifest themselves is a bit independent of how their I, uh, interest in uh, you know, narrow interests and repetitive interests and so on are. So you think you have to think of autism in a multidimensional space so that kind of high and low functioning really doesn't cut it. And the role of changing environments in this, you know, you, you were saying sometimes it will only be diagnosed once something happens in, in someone's life. Mm. That is partly why um, we hear of you know people di- being diagnosed in middle age, as is the case with, with Laura James. Yeah. Absolutely. So where I work um, in the diagnostic clinic, we see sometimes adults coming for first diagnosis of autism in their 70s. Mm. And a typical kind of story would be you've got somebody who clearly always had these very pronounced autistic traits, but maybe when they retire and they lose the structure from their lives or their other half dies... Um, they can no longer cope and then the autism just becomes much clearer and much more impairing. Um, So that is why, as you say, sometimes late diagnosis. The other thing, of course, is that our concept of autism has changed. The diagnostic criteria have changed over time and people are recognised now as being on that autism spectrum who... 10, 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have been recognised. And is it better to be recognised as on an autistic spectrum for the person? Do you Because do there's a runner risk if you over-pathologise, you actually put someone into a box that, that isn't that helpful, whereas... Yeah, or, or does diagnosis come as some kind of a relief to these people yeah. after all of these years of, of wondering why they feel differently? Or In my experience, generally, autism diagnosis is a huge relief. And one of the things I find really upsetting is that a lot of adults who finally get a diagnosis of autism will say, does that mean I'm not stupid? And often these incredibly intelligent people, but their explanation for why they haven't quite got it in the neurotypical world, why they haven't quite understood the joke or known why they did something wrong, was that they must be stupid. I mean, of course, you don't want to pathologise something that is an individual difference somebody is living happily and easily with, but no one's going off into the streets and diagnosing no. people. We're talking about people who've made their way often with a great struggle. To, to get a diagnosis. But that can be true of children, of course, because uh, unlike people who've lived through middle age where there's no framework whatsoever, you have kids who are three, four, five, who are entering the system, who are very scrutinised now mm. about their behaviour, where presumably pathologisation is slightly more of a risk. I think very early diagnosis, so trying to diagnose when a child is two, can be risky because you just don't know yet how things are going to unfold. And it might be a language impairment rather than autism, for example. But by and large, um, I've heard for every case of a family where they've said, I wish they hadn't jumped to the conclusion of autism, I've certainly met 50 families who've said, why did it take us so long to get the recognition and the help we needed? And tell us about, because there's a big lag uh, when it comes to male diagnosis versus female diagnosis w- women tend to, or girls tend to be undiagnosed for longer and there are different w- what's going on there the presentation of autism in women is a really important topic and something we've got hardly any research on actually historically because we thought that there were maybe 10 times as many males as females women have actually been systematically excluded from research. You imagine if you're trying to do a study and you're going to recruit 30 people, you think you're only going to get three females. 
you just decide to look at males. But that means what we know about autism is actually what we know about male autism. And that means when we look for autism in the diagnostic clinic, we're looking based on a sort of stereotype that is probably wrong for women. Um, there are lots of other reasons why uh, women probably go undiagnosed, misdiagnosed um, and reach diagnosis late. It's possible that women show their autism in a somewhat different way or that some women w- with autism do. And, what, what, and how, because I suppose the standard way of a, of, a, of a boy doing it would be obsessive behaviour uh, around individual things and, and sort of not being able to sort of break away from a continual cycling of, of the same information. Is that a particularly male thing, do you think, rather than a female thing? Or is there a risk of that? I think that there's um, there's a slight nuance on it. So um, it, it, it seems that women have um, those really narrow and repetitive interests more often on typical kinds of ordinary topics. So when a clinician asks a child or an adult being assessed, you know, what are you interested in? If a boy says he's interested in electricity pylons and he's photographed every electricity pylon you know, up and down the country, a red flag goes up. You know, this might be autism. If a woman says, I'm interested in horses, or a girl says, I'm interested in this boy band, unless you dig deeper and find out that actually they're only interested in collecting facts about those things, they don't actually have a kind of rounded interest then the clinician's not going to worry. So that's one of the ways that it might look different. And in terms of the social and communication difficulties, a lot of women and girls with autism tell us that they consciously camouflage their autism. They choose somebody in their class or at their workplace, a girl, a woman, who appears to be socially successful, and they copy everything about that person, how they dress, how they talk, how they act. So there seem to be different ways that women and men, in general, uh, it's a generalisation, are coping with autism. So something like Laura James's book, Important, that she's telling a story of an autistic, the subtitle is An Autistic Woman in a Neurotypical World. What do we get from Laura James's book? Oh, there's lots to take from this book. Is it a good I think, book? Absolutely, absolutely a good book. And um, a, a really good personal journey. You asked whether diagnosis is a positive thing. You can see in the book that she struggles with both what this means in a negative way. Maybe it means she's not going to change. Um, but also in a positive way, and it brings a whole new level of understanding and acceptance, self-acceptance and acceptance in her family as well. Um, I think there are lots of things we can take from this book. So um, she's describing very vividly how hard it is to live with autism, even when apparently outside she's coping so well, when she's so successful, when she's so successful socially that nobody believes she has autism. And there's that kind of catch-22, do I have to break down and really, you know, fail before anyone will listen to the fact that I am different. The uh, other book, the one, um, um, Fall Down Seven Times, Get Up Eight, has this wonderful phrase, which I think is arresting. We've put it in the headline, the immutable beauties of autism. And is there not an argument there are strengths as well as weaknesses to to, to people who are on the spectrum. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, autism can be thought of as a very different psychological style, a different way of processing and understanding the world, and it absolutely comes with strengths. One of the things we've done a lot of research on is the eye for detail, the ability that people with autism have to, to spot and remember details of the everyday world that the rest of us miss. So... Um, uh, Occasionally, people with autism are referred to or have been referred to as autists. And I've been in a setting where somebody with autism said, if we're autists, then uh, you non-autistic people are heterotists. And one definition of a heterotist is somebody who can't spot a piece of thread on a patterned carpet. 
So the idea of an, this this eye for detail that the rest of us are just missing this yeah. beautiful fine grain of perception. But a lot of people with autism also will talk about sensory differences that both bother them but also delight them. So the the absolute um, thrill of light through your fingers or watching water drop um, and being completely lost in that experience. But on the other side, also unbearable noise or the feeling of clothing. That's something that Laurie James talks about, the, the itchy feeling of clothing being really physically painful to her. And actually even to see somebody else in itchy clothing is so painful to her, which underlies the um, empathy that actually is very present in autism. Yeah, I mean, but so many of the traits that are identified typically with autism are things that, and I suppose this this ties into the whole idea of there being this spectrum, that people who are not autistic um, or do not have autism uh, would say that they have as well. Um, so it makes it very clear that these books are, are useful well and truly above and beyond the idea of trying to understand autism itself. It's, it's also just about understanding the way our own minds work as well. Mm. I mean, um, alexithymia, uh, the inability to understand one's own emotions. Oh, alexithymia, yes. Alexithymia. Yeah, yeah. No, alexithymia is really interesting. So that's not actually part of autism, but it's something that is very common in a whole range of different clinical groups. So maybe about 50% of adults with autism also have alexithymia. And alexithymia is not being able to reflect on and talk about your own emotions. And um, it's when you have alexithymia that things like recognising other people's emotions and showing that natural, easy emotional empathy with others begins to be a real struggle. But it's very important to remember that for most people with autism, it's not a problem of empathy. They may have difficulty knowing what you're thinking, but they damn well care what you're feeling. And they can understand notions of pain and isolation, not absolutely. least because they're experiencing a lot of them themselves. But we, but we can feel, oh, they don't get... That they're in their own world, they're in their own box. Therefore, we they don't they don't care about us, and and that's a myth that is rather persistent, isn't it? Absolutely, no, it's com- uh, it's completely a myth, and uh, it's you know f- fueled by some you know portrayals of, of autism in the media that sort of almost equate it with sociopathy, or you know, sorry, with as if yeah. they're callous, and they're not callous at all. They may have difficulty understanding others, but they absolutely care about others. Just finally, Francesca, is it fair to say things are getting better, that we're living in a, in a time when diagnosis is more efficient, where autism is no longer a, a mystery or a badge to sort of push someone into the corner? Can you, can you end on an optimistic note that we're sort of recognising I suppose the wonderful variety of life and and the autistic spectrum is is almost a manifestation of that. I think things are getting better. I think the awareness of neurodiversity, that that this isn't something necessarily to be cured, but something to be understood and supported and celebrated. I think that is a real, really strong movement, very much thanks to self-advocates like the authors of these books, who are really giving us their first-person view. Francesca Happy, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Francesca Happy, Marcel Theroux, Lina Al Safin, and Toby Lishtig. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's TLS, which includes plenty more on the Middle East, as well as rediscovering the decadent Arthur Simmons and Chris Krauss on how punk ate itself. Next week we'll be looking at how the internet has corrupted language. Or has it? Like whatever. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.